right alongside the spiritual gift of sorrow. All humans have these gifts. They are bred into our very nature, just as is belovedness. Joy does not remove sorrow. It takes sorrow's hand and walks beside it in companionship. I am Reverend Candace Bist, and along with our very talented musical director, Bruce Lee, I serve the Shelburne Primrose Pastoral Charge in Southern Ontario. And this week, we are walking together through the third week of Advent and its theme of joy. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming or arrival. And we might also note that the word adventure comes from the same root, adventurous, signifying something that is about to happen. In our liturgical calendar, Advent is a time of preparation for the season of Christmas, where we welcome and celebrate the birth of Jesus, who, to us, is the Christ. For four weeks, we read and reflect upon the various birth stories of Jesus, his baptism, the nativity in Bethlehem, the light coming into the darkness. And we also reflect upon the state of our own lives as we prepare to open our hearts more fully to the presence of Christ within us. And that is a great adventure. Advent is one of the earliest observances in our faith, dating back to the 6th century, when fasting was a major part of the season's preparation. Over time, our customs and rituals change, and our current way of observing Advent is with a wreath of four candles, representing hope, peace, joy, and love. This week, we gather around the candle of joy, and that may seem somewhat bittersweet. But we are called to worship in the midst of contradiction, in the midst of life and death, joy and sorrow, in the midst of conflicting emotions and conflicting memories. We are called to see life as gift, to see others as miraculous mysteries yet to be known. We are called to find contentment in the midst of discontent. And we are called to find joy, joy, joy in the simplest act of living each day. 
We worship today with joy and the hope that it will spread out into the community and beyond and be gifted along with all the other Advent gifts of hope and peace and love. from the ever-devoted Wendell Berry, farmer, theologian, and poet, a modern-day prophet walking the mystic's path. He sees the nativity right in the middle of his morning chores at the barn. And Wendell calls us to see the nativity, particularly during the season of Advent, wherever we cast our eyes. Remembering that it happened once, we cannot turn away the thought as we go out, cold, to our barns, toward the long night's end, that we ourselves are living in the world it happened in when it first happened, and that we ourselves, opening a stall, a latch thrown open countless times before, might find them breathing there. The child 
bedded in straw, the mother kneeling over him, the husband standing in belief he scarcely can believe, in light that lights them from no source we see, an April morning's light, the air around them joyful as a choir. We stand with one hand on the door, looking into another world that is this world, the pale daylight coming just as before, our chores to do, the cattle all awake, our own white frozen breath hanging in front of us, and we are here as we have never been before, sighted as not before, our place holy, although we knew it not. Pray with me. Gracious God, giver of all manner of gifts, holder of all our terrors, and comforter of our fear. In Advent, we wait in anticipation of the birthing of newness within us. Remind us not to rush. Hold us steady and quiet so that space can open up for new imaginings, new dreams, new thought. Guide us to follow Jesus in the way of love, in all that we do, in all that we are, in all that we might be. You sent Jesus so that we might have life and have it abundantly. May that abundance come alive as joy. Help us to know that life is good and that you are good. And may the joy of your presence in us be our witness to the world that you are our God. Amen. thought of the Advent season as a tender time, a sweet time. Advent mirrors the season of Lent that prepares us for Easter, the other high holiday in our faith. But Lent has a heavier, penitent aspect to it. 
Advent somehow seems gentler in its reflections. Perhaps that is because at the center of the story is a young couple expecting a child. And that is something that always draws out the best in us. No matter what the circumstances, we hope that they will have a life for their child that is full of joy and love. But this year, we all know that Christmas will not have the usual celebrations that we long associate with the season. And particularly this week, we may wonder how it is that we can gather around the Advent candle of joy with so much uncertainty before us. This last year, there have been families in our congregations, our communities, and throughout the world who have lost someone they loved. This is always difficult. But with the pandemic restricting travel and visiting, we have lost the ability to gather and to comfort one another in the usual way. I have always felt in our local community that though a service of some kind is important, the greater benefit to those grieving is the gathering together afterwards in conversation, hugs, and the sharing of a feast. We have not been able to do this, which has made the sorrows greater. And we who stand at a distance may wonder what, at this time of year, we may do to offer joy to those who will face this Christmas without a particular loved one in their lives. And we may even wonder how, without big family gatherings around the feast table, we can see joy at all in the season. We know that financial insecurity for some is a very real fear. Our young people who are studying have lost the regular camaraderie usually shared with their fellow students. And as the long, dark days continue, there are many upon whom despair and depression descend. How then can we celebrate joy? I think we can begin by understanding that sorrow and grief are but playmates with joy and delight, and that one does not have to be banished for the other to flourish. We may weep with our friends and even laugh. We may acknowledge their tears and our tears, even as we conjure up memories of joy. Joyfulness is born of a deep gratitude for life and for love. And all those who grieve a loss this year have been given the gift of love. And this must never be discounted. Love, loss, joy, sorrow, delight, despair. They all live together in community and cannot be separated one from the other. So we offer our love, our own joy, our gratitude for the richness of life to others without the expectation that their sadness will be released, but that their sadness is valuable and must be honored in the parade of God's rich givings. And so too, we must honor within ourselves the feelings of sadness, for they are but a reflection of the love we bear others and ourselves. 
This week and next in our scripture readings and our reflections, we have young Mary, prophetess and priestess both, to show us how joy may be held in perfect harmony with distress, loss, fear, and uncertainty. Mary is, and always was, the original rock star, and we shall hear her song in today's reading of the Magnificat. Mary has much to teach. May we follow her lead in life and in the great adventure of welcoming her child into our hearts. Many moonless nights, cold and weary, with a babe inside, and I wonder what I've done. Breath of heaven 
Before we get back to Mary and her wonderful Magnificat, we begin with a little Bible study so that you understand why we would be reading from the book of Mark last week and we're reading from the book of Luke this week. Matthew Bolton, in his podcast series, Understanding Christmas, which I am posting on our website to run concurrently with this podcast, offers up the most wonderful approach to understanding the nature of the Bible. It is a brilliant analogy. He suggests that the Bible should be understood as a library, a place where books have been assembled over a long period of time, incorporating, as libraries do, various authors with differing opinions and interests. The authors live and write in different historical and cultural periods. So, though they may all be writing about one particular subject, there are a variety of ways they approach the knowledge they offer. And just as in ordinary literature, you will know that authors borrow from one another. They read an idea they like, and then they expand on it, adding their additional thought. They quote openly from other authors. They are inspired by writers that have come before them. And this is true in the Bible as well. You may think of the authors as being in conversation with one another. And when we enter the library, take a book down off the shelf, and enter a biblical text, we too enter the ongoing conversation. The Protestant Bible is commonly known to contain 66 books, but that is not completely accurate because each book can have smaller books within it. Take the book of Isaiah, for example. It is written over a 200-year period and clearly has a number of authors, all in conversation with one another, but offering a different lens into what is going on in Israel at the time they write. Only three chapters into the book of Genesis, you will find two, if not three, creation stories by different authors within the same larger book we count as one. You may have been asked at one time or another if you believe in the Bible. But if you think of the Bible as a library of books, Matthew Bolton astutely points out, one does not say they believe in the library, 
but that one enters into the library. We enter the library for an experience, for a conversation, to further our understanding, to be in dialogue with many others who, like ourselves, are interested in God and humanity and how the two work in concert together. And that is a wonderful way to understand our Bible. We enter into it with curiosity and a desire to learn. We acknowledge from the outset that each book will have different things to offer. We acknowledge that different people will prefer different books and that all the authors do not have, nor should they have, the same story to tell. Each story is as unique as its author. So now think on the four Gospels. There are four sets of books with many other books inside them that are all on the shelf in the biblical library, and the shelf is entitled The Life and Ministry of Jesus. Last week, we saw that Mark started his story of Jesus with John baptizing Jesus in water. Jesus then experiences a rebirth in the Spirit as he understands himself to be beloved by God. This is the rebirth that Jesus will teach Nicodemus sometime later when he claims that each person must come to be born again or twice born. Jesus bases this on his own spiritual birth story. At our Sunday afternoon Zoom chat last week, which by the way, you can all join 4.30 on Sunday, Karen said that Luke was by far her favorite gospel. So she will be very glad to hear we are leaving the book of Mark for the moment to visit the birth story in the book of Luke for the next two weeks. And of course, as we always do on Christmas Eve. The book of Luke is particularly loved by women. It begins with Mary as the star of the birth story. It ends with Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women coming to attend Jesus at the tomb, chatting up the angel they meet, and then heading off to tell others of their experience. There is a lot of commonality between the four Gospels, but Luke contains a large section of his writing that is unique to his gospel. This is known to scholars as the L source. Along with containing the original nativity story, it also includes the well-known tales of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, and Mary and Martha. They are only found in the book of Luke. Luke's book is also filled with music and song. The opening of his story contains four canticles, the most well-known being the Magnificat, Mary's bold call to revolution. It's no surprise that Jesus was drawn to the prophetic call of John the Baptist and then took upon himself the same mantle, for he was born of a prophet, and that prophet's name was Mary. One of the main characteristics of the Hebrew prophets was that they embodied their teachings, offering to their audiences what is called a sign act. Sign acts are nonverbal actions and objects intentionally employed by the prophets 
so that message content was communicated through them to the audience. Jeremiah smashed jars. Ezekiel baked bread over human waste. Isaiah walked around naked and barefoot for three years. These are but three examples of the many ways that prophets used items and their person to teach. Luke, in his interpretation of the birth of Jesus, gives to Mary the ultimate sign act, the ultimate visual aid, the ultimate show and tell, so that we will all know that God is with us and that he cares about all those who are forgotten and lowly. He gives us Mary, a prophetess as receiver of God, one who, humble as she is, may offer her soul to magnify the larger divine soul of the universe. And here is Mary's bold proclamation. It contains echoes of the prophet Isaiah, the visionary Hannah, and her song of gratitude to God for her son, found in the book of 1 Samuel, to Jael and Judith, women liberators of Israel, written about in the book of Judges. The writer of Luke created the Magnificat, vivid with images and words from the long line of Hebrew prophets, visionaries, and liberators. And he places it in the voice of his young, pregnant heroine, Mary. I think it is fair to say that Luke saw in women the same thing that Jesus saw, courage, strength, and creative possibility. I am reading from Luke 1, 46b to 55. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things in me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The writer of Luke put these words in Mary's mouth, but he also gives us a backstory to this bold proclamation that's worth noting. For Mary did not start out with this strength. She started out frightened and alarmed and uncertain of her future. Mary's magnificat of joyful exuberance does not emerge from nothing. It emerges from a very specific order of events. And they offer all of us 
a trail of breadcrumbs through the forest for all of us who feel at times frightened and uncertain. Previous to the scripture I just read, Mary has spoken to an angel. We will be reading about that encounter next week. And the angel has given her some pretty startling news. The arrival of angels always has an element of terror within it. Here is Mary, single, poor, of no account in the way of worldly measuring, and now she must bear a child, all with the simple instruction that she is not to be afraid. Goodness, now wouldn't you be terrified? I certainly would be. But what does Mary do? In haste, the scriptures read, she goes to the hill country to visit with her cousin Elizabeth. The hill country is rocky. It is where the poor folk live, away from the cities, away from the rich farmland. And here, Mary has the company of another pregnant woman where she is valued and feels safe with her fear, her uncertainty, her confusion. And then Mary draws on her faith, the stories that she knows of wise, strong women. She brings to mind the long history of the prophetic voice calling in the wilderness that our God is stronger than fear and a certain force of good in the midst of uncertainty. From her cousin Elizabeth, from her cultural history, from the knowledge that she bears of her faith, Mary draws strength and is reminded who she is, a child of God, beloved by the universe. And why then should she not be chosen? Were not the heroes and heroines of her faith so often the overlooked? King David was a lowly shepherd boy, the youngest in his family. Rahab was a Canaanite, a prostitute, and she ended up being the ancestress of kings, prophets, and Jesus himself. For God can use all people in all circumstances. He can offer the joy of an adventure in the midst of the terror of the unknown in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of uncertainty. Understanding this, Mary is able to rejoice, to be grateful, to understand that though she may not know the way, God does. God lifts us up when we mourn, gathers us in warm embrace when we are frightened, shows us the way when we cannot find it. When you are lost, think on Mary's courage, her wisdom, her journey, and let her lead the way.
Posted on our website an Advent reflection from Reverend Richard Bott, the moderator of the United Church of Canada, along with several reflective articles on Christmas this year from the ever-wonderful UCC magazine Broadview. Reverend Bott provides an interesting theological approach to Christmas this year. He suggests we see it as a fallow time. In the Hebraic tradition, every seventh year is a Shemitah, or sabbatical year. Land was left fallow. Whatever grows naturally was free. And at year's end, all personal debts are to be forgiven. In Exodus 23, 10-11, Shemitah precedes the injunction for individuals to rest on the seventh day. It's written, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Some of you who garden may have adapted this ritual of sometimes seeding your gardens in cover crops and leaving them to rest for a season. It is a way of honoring time, making space for reflection, and allowing the atmosphere of the Sabbath to penetrate a whole long period of time. 
We have within our Christian calendar two built-in seasons of reflection, Advent and Lent. Christmas time is to be a time of celebration. But there are different ways to celebrate, are there not? And perhaps this year, this fallow year, we might consider the quiet celebration of gratitude, of affection, of memory. We may celebrate with deep prayer. We may celebrate with quiet letter writing. We may celebrate with slower meals, not of extravagant fancy food, but with the deep appreciation of the harvest and all those who make it possible. Consider that this Christmas, with its slower pace, we are being drawn back to the original intent of Christmas, which was to find within ourselves a heart reborn in gratitude, grace, and compassion. Bruce and I are preparing a Christmas Eve service along with the choir. It will not, of course, be the service we have all come to love with everyone crowded together lighting candles and singing. But no less care will go into its creation. And we are hoping that you will communicate to your families the importance of sitting quietly and listening to the reading through of the Christmas story on Christmas Eve, along with the beautiful music of the season. And perhaps you will light your very own Christ candle in your own home. When you are making your plans for this season, make this listening part of your plan. Continue to be kind and tender with one another and with me as you have been. It pleases God and it expands the community of affection to include all people. My friend Julie sent me this little piece of a poem from the English poet William Blake. The larger poem is The Auguries of Innocence, but it is this little section that is important to hear now. Man was made for joy and woe, and when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go, joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. Let's close with a little Advent prayer. O God, our Creator, you cast down the mighty and lift up those of no account, like Elizabeth and Mary, who embraced one another with songs of liberation. May we, pregnant with your Spirit, affirm one another in hope for this world. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, God of love. 
Hearts unfold like flowers before you Opening to the sun above Melt the clouds of sin and sadness Drive the dark of doubt away Giver of immortal gladness Fill us with the light of day With joy surround you Earth and heaven reflect your rays Stars and angels sing around you Center of unbroken praise Field and forest, vale and mountain Flowery meadow, flashing sea Chanting bird and flowing fountain to rejoice in thee You are giving and forgiving Ever blessing, ever blessed Wellspring of the joy of living Ocean depth of happy rest Source of grace and fountain of blessing Let your light upon us shine Teach us how to love each other Lift us to the joy divine Join the mighty chorus Which the morning stars began God's own love is reigning o'er us Joining people hand in hand Ever singing March we onward Victors in the midst of strife Joyful music leads us sunward In the triumph song Bye.